Ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Welcome to Space 3D. In this next series of episodes, co-hosts Eleanor Arrangers and Tom Hill had the opportunity to interview their fellow co-host, Emily Carney, about Gerard K. O'Neill, theoretical physicist and space futurist who she has written about in her National Space Society blogs. In this episode, we'll discuss what sparked Emily's interest in GKO, and then we'll explore O'Neill's protracted journey to space settlement stardom. So good evening, everyone. This is Eleanor Rangers, one of the co-hosts of Space 3D. I'm joined here with my other illustrious co-hosts, Tom Hill, and the star of the show this evening, Emily Carney. And Emily has written several articles that many of our listening audience have probably seen in the National Space Society publication. She actually has done several articles on Gerard K. O'Neill, Gerard Kitchen O'Neill, and I want to know where that middle name came from. But we're going to talk with Emily this evening about what I'm calling the notorious GKO, a fascinating (laughs) gentleman and someone that uh, I don't think everyone knows much about, but I certainly was fascinated in in sort of preparing for for this uh, podcast this evening. So without further ado, I think we'll kind of get into it. Does that sound like a plan? Sounds great. Works for me. All right. So, I, I mean, first and foremost, Emily, what piqued your interest in reading up on Gerard K. O'Neill? I mean, did you wake up one morning and just say, you know, I always was like kind of curious about the high frontier. Just really curious. How did you, how did it strike you? Because one of the themes I think that's interesting about the blogs that you, that you write, uh, which I always enjoy, is that you tend to also pick topics that, that are not mainstream, which is great because you learn something different about the space program that is not the typical canon history, if you will. So, you know, give us some insight on, on that. Oh, gosh. Well, well, first of all, thanks for uh, asking me to do this. This is really a lot of fun, and I'm looking forward to it. And uh, second, I, I really honestly grew interested in um, Gerard K. O'Neill. As a kid, I'd seen the, um, I didn't, I knew who he was, like I'd heard of his name, but the only thing I'd really seen uh, related to him were the paintings that people like uh, Rick Sternbach and uh, Don Davis had done of his uh, proposed space uh, settlements. So, and I mean, I love, I'm obsessed to this day with those paintings. I think they're incredible. But I really didn't know much about him as a kid. I think The High Frontier, the book, was really above my head when I was a little kid. So a few years ago, probably three or so, not very long ago, I, I was like, man, I need to read the, you know, The High Frontier. I feel like this is kind of a piece of, you know, my knowledge that's missing because um, I've heard this book discussed a lot, but I've never read it. So I read it and um, I just instantly just fell in love with the book and uh i think o'neill he's a magnificent writer he's very erudite uh he's really he's really he's on that level that i think carl sagan is where he's not just a great scientist but he's also a really excellent communicator and that that's important i don't think everybody can do that 
what fascinates me about that book is um, it's scientific. I mean, it's very well thought out. And O'Neill, he was a scientist. He was a physicist. So it's very well um, thought out. It's very precise. Um, he's very serious in it, but it's still very readable. And um, it's not a boring book. Like, you're not like, oh, my God, I got to read this freaking book. You know, it's not yeah. like a textbook. So um, I just I just fell in love with the book. I, I was like, wow, you know, I'm really impressed. And um, I hate to say it. I wasn't expecting much from it just because from the, I was expecting it to be like a textbook, sort of very dry and, you know, and but, knowing yeah. his but background you know I, I expected it to be like a textbook you know <laughs> yeah a bunch of like differential equations or something like that in there yeah exactly i expected it to be like an engineering um textbook because there, i have read books before that it's like okay this is the ultimate resource about this particular topic and it was like an engineering textbook and it's just like i think that's great for people who are going into that field, but somebody like me, I'm not a, I'm not an engineer. I'm not a physicist. You know, it, it helps to have somebody who's kind of, to have somebody explain it to me in a way that's, you know, interesting. And O'Neill does a fantastic job at it. And he really does make a persuasive non-science fiction case for space settlement. And I was very, I was just really impressed by it. And um, he has uh, two other, uh, mainstream books that are uh, still available. He has another one called 2081, uh, which is a, a hopeful, I think the subtitle is like a hopeful vision for the future. And he has another one called The Technology Edge, uh, which was published, I think, in 1985. And that's more about American competitiveness in tech. So um, he published a few books. Uh, I haven't read the latter book, but I've definitely... Um, I've read 2081 and I enjoyed it. Some people didn't. Um, it's kind of out there as far as uh, futurism. But uh, The High Frontier, I think, is a must read for anybody who has an interest in space flight. You know, it's also interesting that, well, I don't know if you can maybe for our audience to tell tell folks about how he came to have an interest in space settlement. Um, because, I mean, he started out as a physics professor, you know, at, at Princeton and, and then, uh, he's teaching physics and then all of a sudden it's like, well, how did he get interested in, in this tangent? Because he had been just working on very traditional theoretical physicist, high, I guess, high particle physics, uh, experiments. And then boom, all of a sudden he's like Mr. Space Settlement. So I'm curious about that story. Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a really good question. Really what happened was the mid-60s happened, and um, O'Neill, like many people during that time, was going through a lot of changes uh, personally and professionally. In the mid-60s, he got divorced uh, from his uh, first wife. Uh, they had had three kids together. Um, he had, I, I don't know what's behind that, but um, for that time, divorce was kind of a big deal. Another thing was he was sort of going through like I wouldn't say a midlife, like a career midlife crisis, but he was sort of like, what do I want to do next with my career? He was entering his 40s and, and the world, obviously the world was changing in a big way at the time. Space flight was really ramping up in a big way. Uh, in the United States, we had the Gemini program and Apollo was right around the corner. And, you know, the United States was really focused on going to the moon. 
And um, O'Neill did have an interest an interest in the space program, even though he was um, he was a particle he was a physicist at Princeton. Um, in 1966, 67, he did try out for the um, astronaut program uh, for the 1967 class. And the 67 class uh, had a few people that would be sort of part of his story. Uh, the class ended up having uh, Dr. Uh, Brian O'Leary is one of its uh, astronauts. And that's a whole other story. <laughs> that's a whole other story in itself. Um, and it also had uh, Dr. Phil Chapman, who was, um, who was the first Australian American astronaut and um, who also sort of played a story in uh, O'Neill's life later. And if I could just interrupt for our audience, um, actually, Emily has written about both of those individuals as well. If you have any interest in learning more about uh, Dr. Chapman and uh, Brian O'Leary. Yes. Yeah. Their stories are really interesting as well. Basically, what happened was O'Neill tried out. He auditioned for that class, uh, the 1967 scientist astronaut class, and he was a finalist for it, but he didn't quite make it. He wasn't selected, which kind of tells you, um, I'm not sure why he didn't get selected. Uh, if anybody out there knows, uh, please feel free to hit me up. Uh, but I'm not sure if it was because of his age, because he was uh, 40 at the time, which was was considered old at the time, which blows my mind. But uh, he was not selected for the class. But um, he really did have an interest in space flight. And uh, part of that was born from the Apollo program and the idea of going to deep space. And he really thought, you know, okay, this is going to be, you know, the way of the future. So by 1969, um, Apollo was in full swing. We started sending people to the moon. And uh, during that same time, O'Neill was teaching physics at Princeton, and he came up with sort of a idea for his students who are a little more advanced than um, his, you know, kind of his basic students or more struggling students. And he came up with the idea of, you know, okay, um, do we need to live on a planet to necessarily go out into space? What are some ideas maybe that we could, you know, come up with? to live outside of space and not necessarily have to live on another planet or another, you know, another solar system body. So he really proposed that question in 1969. And um, he did have people on his team who helped him uh, at Princeton. He really started to propose it on paper around that time. And this was a serious idea. Like he wasn't, it wasn't science fiction. It wasn't, you know, whimsy or anything. He was really, um, it, it was based on, you know, he did a lot of equations. He did a lot of work. He wrote an article, which I have right by me, and it's called um, The Colonization of Space. Pretty easy, uh, pretty easy title. So he wrote this article, and it really sets out in um, a scientific way. I mean, there's equations, um, and there's, you know, he basically set out in this piece, you know, the kind of the basic tenets for what would happen in the book, The High Frontier. Um, and one of the basic tenets was, you know, we can put bodies at a, a gravitationally uh, stable point. Um, the one he chose was L5 and um, the fifth Lagrangian point. And basically, that was one of the tenets. Yeah, that was one of the tenets of what he proposed. Really, the article just kind of lays out, you know, the, the fundamentals for what would go into the book, The High Frontier. The High Frontier has a couple of more colonies that he would um, devise uh, I think between 1974 and 77. 
which um, he he has three in the book, The High Frontier. He um, he discusses three distinct types of uh, space colonies or settlements as we would uh, use now. (laughs) That's the language we use now as far as um, uh, that's concerned. But um, so he wrote this article. Basically, what I'm trying to get at is he wrote this article called The Colonization of Space. And he's like, okay, you know, I wrote this really awesome article. Let me try to send it to, you know, publications and get it published. Nobody would touch it. Um, No one touched it for five years. (laughs) He started to get, like, I think he sent it to, um, geez, I'm trying to think of all the magazines he, the scientific uh, magazines he sent it to. I think he sent it to um, Science. I think he sent it to... Uh, a few very prominent uh, scientific magazines and they just wouldn't publish it. You know, they just rejected it. And he was getting very discouraged because, you know, this wasn't like a science fiction article. It wasn't like something you'd put in like, you know, a a science fiction pulp mag. It was serious. And he wanted to give it the idea legitimacy by putting it in like a serious journal. So Cut, let's fast forward to 1972. He's tried getting it published. And by this point, he was really discouraged. And um, so he met up. Uh, he went on vacation and he met up with Brian O'Leary, of all people. Um, <laughs> yeah, he met up with Brian O'Leary, who was no longer an astronaut by this point. But uh, O'Leary was an astronomer and a, a lecturer by that point at Hampshire College. And um, so he talked to O'Leary and O'Leary was like, well, why don't you come to my school and do a lecture on this? You know, I, we think it would be pretty cool. You know, and O'Neill was like, okay, you know, that sounds cool. So he shows up, gives this lecture, and it was standing room only from what I've heard. And it had, I want to say, over 200 people in the lecture. And it was a huge hit. And this wow. really was... So O'Leary was responsible for not just doing the first... Le- you know, not just setting up the first lecture about space settlement... But he was also instrumental in, you know, giving O'Neill sort of his uh, mojo back, you know, because by this point, O'Neill was like, you know, he was really getting like discouraged. He didn't want to give up. But at the same time, he's like, nobody's publishing this and everybody thinks I'm a nutbag, you know? You know, it's curious um, because I was thinking about this article and in some respects, you know, you you think about O'Neill as sort of this father of space settlement. And it made me sort of think a little bit about Von Braun and the famous Collier's Magazine's articles that he did with in the illustrations of Chelsea Bonstell. And I'm like, why didn't he think of something like that? You know, like taking that out of the box approach and going to Disney or some non-scientific journal to, or non-scientific magazine to get, to get published. I think um, O'Neill was really obsessed with the idea of putting it in a scientific journal because mm-hmm. he wanted it not to be like known as a, a like a sci-fi thing or like a yeah. kind of a fluff idea. You know, he was um, he was really earnest. I talked to Don Davis, who uh, later would illustrate the uh, Bant- Bantam version of the High Frontier. And Don Davis was like, you know, he was very serious he was a nice person and he was easy to work with, but he was very earnest about what he was doing. He wasn't, he didn't view it as like this fantasy idea. And I think that's why he wanted it in a scientific journal versus, you know, a magazine, like, I don't know, Harper's Bazaar or something like that. I'm just throwing something out like a, you know, like a regular magazine. So I yeah. think, I think that's, that's why. A major, 
I think it's a major <laughs> example of not being able to think outside the box. Let's face it, Von Braun, by going to Disney and Collier's and all that sort of thing, he was taking a huge leap. It happened to work, but it's only the ones that work that we remember. Otherwise, you're like derided as this guy who was just crazy. Why Why would you go to Disney with that? Yeah, I do think earlier in O'Neill's, I wouldn't say earlier in his career, because by this point, he was in his mid-40s. So um, he was sort of mid mid career I would say but I think um at this point in career if you in his career if you listen to interviews of him around this time done in like 1974 I've listened to a, a couple and um by the way it does have a happy ending by um once he did that lecture at Hampshire College his idea did gain a lot of momentum in the scientific community and um people no longer thought he was just some you know, a crackpot talking about this. And um, a few things happened in 1974 that really um, that really made a big difference. Physics Today uh, published the article, The Colonization of Space. And there was also a front page article on the New York Times about his ideas. And that article um, really helped him gain a ton of traction mainstream. So that was really wow. his like... His breaking, that was really the moment where he broke into the mainstream. But I think part of it honestly was, I've talked to a few people who knew him and um, listening to some tapes of early interviews he did, he came across as really shy. When he first started, I think, um, doing this, I don't think he was very media savvy. Um, Mm. And that's not really a criticism. I mean, he was a scientist. So why would he be, you know? You know, I think he was very... Like there's an interview of his um, that he did with Isaac Asimov um, in 1974, and it's on the Space Studies Institute um, SoundCloud. If anybody wants to go listen to it, and it's a really cool article, but it's really funny to listen to O'Neill juxtaposed with Isaac Asimov because Isaac Asimov is very you know outgoing and primary colors, and you know, and O'Neill's very quiet, you know, and he's I think part of the reason why it maybe took him so long was I think he there was kind of a shyness there and I think I think he really wanted it to be regarded you know in a scientific journal and not in you know a mainstream a mainstream newspaper or magazine but he did gain popularity mainstream though it just took him five years (laughs) yeah I think science is better when it's out of the limelight than when it's in the limelight if you look at his career past 1974, he developed a lot of uh, mainstream popularity um, and stuff. And I'll talk a little bit more about that. I, I'm guessing we'll probably get to that later. Yeah. But if you look at his career during the 70s, he he gained a lot more mainstream traction. I think his initial, I, I he wasn't really a Carl Sagan type. Like Carl Sagan was in the news all the time. He was on TV constantly. And um, I think O'Neill was a little more reserved. So that may have been part of it. Yeah, that was something I was wondering, too. Like, it's interesting that you have these somewhat charismatic physicists that sort of made it and you made it sort of mainstream. You know, you think of, yeah, Sagan, of course, and to a lesser extent, O'Neill. But it's like, why? You know, it's like curious that he it's almost like his academic academic orientation in some respects limited him limit him limited him in some way because of like you know having to really push to have this you know 
stuff published in a scientific journal and, you know, not um, getting like a television program like Carl Sagan did. And uh, it just, it's just interesting to kind of compare and contrast. Another thing about O'Neill that I think bears um, mentioning is that he was kind of known even um, in the scientific community in his, in physics, um, he was known for, um, I'm trying to explain this in a way that doesn't come across as being critical. Um, he was known for working on very long-term projects that really had no immediate payoff. And he did okay. receive some criticism for that during his career. Um, and I mean, he was nowadays in physics, uh, he's known as as a pioneer because he came up with the um, the particle storage ring. He invented that, and that's nowadays as a, as a standard in the industry. But um, it took about probably, a, I think, a, about a decade for that to show um, that it was actually something viable. But, you know, a decade is a long time to show progress. <laughs> so yeah. um, I, I think he received a, a lot of criticism for, okay, this is somebody who tends to like to work on long-term projects that don't have, you know, an immediate... Um, like an immediate payoff type of thing. So I think that's another hallmark of his career. Ironically, that's one of the big claims of academia is you're not worried about the immediate payoff. You're worried about the, the more long-term and that, that tension is something that's just really come to the forefront. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, he's a theoretical physicist. So why, you know, that's interesting that he's criticized for not, you know, having something immediately adaptable. But at the same time, though, something that I thought, I don't know if this is unusual or not, but um, he did see, and maybe this is also an outcropping of some of the criticism he received during his career, that uh, he came up with these ideas, um, but he also built like prototypes and things. So he kind of put theory into action to show sort of these proof of concept things. So I found that interesting as well, and maybe a little different than the average academic theoretical physicist sitting around and like contemplating large thoughts every day. There's a, a book by, a, I believe the author's name is Patrick McRae, and it's called Vision Years, and it was published by Princeton a few years back. And um, the, the title basically combines the term visionary and um, engineers, because um it can be argued that um, and the book focuses partly like half of the book focuses on Gerard K. O'Neill. The book basically classifies him as, you know, a visionary and an engineer because this was somebody who had really big engineering chops as well. He really liked to build things. Um, That's not typical of every physicist out there. Um, He really got down and dirty with stuff. Like he wanted to get his hands on things. So um, that's not, entirely typical of people in his field. That's also something that bears mentioning was that he had big engineering chops as well. And uh, so that's something that's kind of one of his hallmarks. We hope you enjoyed our interview with Emily Carney on Gerard K. O'Neill. We'll continue our exploration of his life and career in our next podcast. For Emily Carney and Tom Hill, this is Eleanor Rangers for Space 3D.